Hello, everyone, and welcome to the PGRCast. Today, we are here with Dr. Garrett Havard. Garrett is the Director of Materials Testing at Artec Materials, and Garrett did his NGD at Swansea University in corrosion of oil refinery materials due to biodiesel, before making a name for himself as an expert in mechanical testing of composites. So, Garrett, over to you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your PhD experience? Uh, hi, everyone. Yeah, so I started off actually doing um, mechanical engineering at Swansea University. Um, I had a passion growing up for Formula One, and I, I was kind of being guided into doing a motorsport degree at, at Swansea Institute, as it was at the time. That's what my father's encouraging me to do, because... As much as I wanted to be a Formula One driver, by the time I was about 13, 14, I realised unless you're a million, multi-millionaire and you've been karting since the age of six months old, you've got no hope as a Formula One driver. So I thought, next best thing, try and uh, get in as an engineer. And then as I was coming up to uh, choosing my university degree, it became apparent if I just concentrate on motorsport engineering, I'm limited to working in motorsport, whereas if I do mechanical engineering, I've got a broader range of stuff I can do. But anyway, so as a result of that, I thought to differentiate myself from the crowd, I'll do a master's. So I did an MRes in materials engineering, because that's where the funding was at Swans University at the time. And I'll always say, it may be changing now, but I'll always say people tend to stumble into materials engineering rather than <laughs> go there by choice. I I'd think agree most, with that. <laughs> yeah, I think most of us wouldn't have heard of materials engineers as an option growing up. Um, so I started working in materials engineering um, for my master's, and I was doing erosion corrosion of 316 stainless steel centrifuge bowls, or as it was affectionately known at Swans University, the shit project. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I was literally working on... Um, the, the part in the sewerage plant that at the end would compact the feces to get as much water out of it as possible. Nice. Um, and there's actually a funny story there that uh, one day I came back from uh, a meeting at Thames Water, came into the uh, into the university and I turned to my lecturer and went, right, I got some samples of shit here. What do you want me to do with it? And <laughs> My lecture thought I was speaking figuratively, not actually. So he's like, oh, just keep a moment. In my office, nice sunny day, came in back in the next day and it absolutely stunk. So obviously that went in the film cover from then on. He abandoned ship for, for about a week while he was at uh, office. And yeah, so that, that was my intention. I started applying for jobs. At that time, the financial crisis kicked off and people essentially stopped hiring. And they were offering silly money, really, to stay on and do an NGD at Swansea. So it became a bit of a no-brainer. So at no point was it a planned trajectory to go into um, doing a PhD, let alone materials engineering as a PhD, or an NGD, should I say. And then I think every single other... NGD on the course was sponsored by Tata. I was the only other person who wasn't sponsored by Tata then. <laughs> so I was actually sponsored by Artec, but the other side of Artec, as it was at the time, called Metamet, mm -hmm. uh, which is now known as Artec Consultants. And the plan was I would train up to become a consultant metallurgist uh, alongside my NGD. Uh, so I'd work there once a week doing uh, field analysis work. 
and then spend the rest of the week working with on projects relating to the oil refinery industry where they did a lot of their work. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of how I got into my NGD really. And at the time, this was the time where there were the government was beginning to mandate, or I think it was the EU at the time, were beginning to mandate that diesel and petrol had to have a certain percentage of biofuels in the mix. At that time, the oil refineries had literally zero idea how how that would react with the existing infrastructure and what corrosion issues that were caused. So that, that's kind of how I got into it. The energy itself ended up being... Let's just call it non-linear. After doing a bit of research, it became quite clear that there's a big chemistry element involved in the in the breakdown of biodiesel over time, and to see how that the products that would come out of it would affect corrosion. So I think I ended up doing quite a bit of pure chemistry in my first year. So I've kind of gone in the space of a couple of years. I've gone from mechanical engineering to materials engineering to pure chemistry. So did all that work then, basically understanding how biodiesel is made and then the decomposition of it and the products that would come out of it and to see what would be the potential corrosive species that would come out of it. Try as I might after that, I could not get the diesel, uh, any of the oil refinery materials to corrode. It just wouldn't happen. <laughs> right. And it doesn't make for an interesting project, does it? Where... <laughs> I, I can't get anything to happen. Mm. Yeah, trying and, to tackle a problem that doesn't seem to exist. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. It's a bit exactly. hard on the right up. <laughs> yes. Um, so again, I was having to do a bit more research on that. Um, there was a, a qualitative test um, that existed for, for the oil refinery industry anyway, for corrosive species, which was essentially plonk a bit of copper in it take it out and look at the colour of the copper and then you compare it to this chart. And there's trying to add a quantitative measurement to that. Um, so be that mass loss, be that um, some electrochemistry techniques. What became apparent was the biodiesel and even the uh, breakdown effects would act as an inhibitor to corrosion. So even if you're adding if you're just doing it in salt water, you add a bit of biodiesel, it would corrode less. So, mm-hmm. okay, I've got a finding now. But if there is actually something happening in the industry, what could it be? And then I did a bit more reading, and it was microbially induced corrosion. So I then went off and did 18 months' worth of biochemistry with no biochemistry background. <laughs> right. And... Uh, yeah, that took me off in some interesting places. I learned a lot. And funny enough, I, I learned a lot of crossover techniques that I wouldn't have learned from that field that I still use today with mm. uh, compasses testing. We were very, very successful in getting things to grow in biodiesel. That was never the issue. Mm-hmm. But the thing we came that ultimately scuppered that line of research was. It didn't matter what we grew, the moment it touched biodiesel, we found it impossible to pick up the DNA. So we tried, we can prove there's something growing. Um, mm-hmm. 
by measuring the amount of protein that was there uh, and measuring that over time. But in, in terms of what was there, we were even doing little studies where we go, right, we know we've got, um, what was it at the time? Streptomyces. So streptomyces. So we know we've got streptomyces there. We'll do it on its own. We literally put a dab of biodiesel in with it, put a DNA kit on it, nothing would show. And we tried so many different methods. We went to the people who make these DNA kits, nothing. So all I could prove was there's something growing there. Um, and ultimately, my my uh, my thesis ended up being uh, a chapter in pure chemistry, then a, a bit in electrochemistry and how it acted as inhibitor to corrosion, mm-hmm. and then a chapter on we can grow stuff in biodiesel, but we don't know what it is, and because we don't <laughs> know what it is, we can't isolate it to then check what the uh, corrosive effect of that species was on the uh, oil refining material. So mm-hmm. it's a bit of a damp squib uh, thesis at the end <laughs> of the day, but I'd gone through the scientific method and that, that was the important thing. And I put it in a position where somebody could pick up after me mm-hmm. if they have the biochemistry expertise and know how to determine what the species is when it touches biodiesel, then they could run with it and do the next stage mm-hmm. and I think the big thing for me was you were very much left on your own when uh, doing a PhD energy what have you I will always say that intellectually the most difficult thing you'll ever do is your undergrad degree but psychologically the most mm-hmm. difficult thing you'll ever do is your your doctorate I mean we, we we'd spend a lot of time teaching people how to work in a team stress and the importance of teamwork and then you get into a this setting and all that falls by the wayside you have mm-hmm. problem solve on your own it requires a lot of resilience to get through it you, you can go if you haven't got that resilience you can go into some dark places um mentally from it fortunately i'm one of those people who is naturally quite resilient but i can see how other people would really, really struggle. And it, I guess it reflects in the dropout rates when it comes to people mm. doing PhD, NHD. When it came to then submitting my thesis, there was definitely uh, a feeling of imposter syndrome going on there. Is in, mm-hmm. I've submitted something here, which is very much inconclusive. And yeah, struggling with, I'm not going to lie, 18 months of not generating any results whatsoever for all my effort. Just as an, a, a bit of an aside, I know I'm going a little bit around the houses here. <laughs> my ex-girlfriend became pregnant with my daughter um, during the final year of my doctorate. And it was unplanned. And I'm not going to lie, it, I did struggle with hearing the news, particularly at that time. Then once I came through that then, I ended up having to... I think I probably generated the vast majority of my results between the final year and then during my write-up year while working at Artec. Mm-hmm. So I was having to juggle working full-time, caring for a baby, and spending my evenings and weekends in the lab, which 
yeah, obviously. It's a lot to have on at any point, I think, for anybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fortray came up the other end of it, uh, mm-hmm. submitted by uh, NHD. Obviously, as I mentioned, feeling a bit of um, imposter syndrome. And then when it came to the, the Viva then, I had a lot of fortune out of my examiner's misfortune. My internal examiner, unfortunately, his father passed away that week and he was trying to plan the funeral arrangements at the time. So he requested that my uh, Viva got put back until the afternoon so that he had the morning to deal with funeral arrangements. And then my external examiner, his card broken down that morning. <laughs> so he wanted a rush back and uh, get back and fix his car. So I think I had uh, an unusually short Viva, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, and I remember they got to the microbiology chapter and they just went, we don't have a clue about this, so we're going to assume it's right. Next chapter. <laughs> it was just got interesting. So yeah, that and there, there were some other things that went on on that Viva day that were just unusual as well. Um, so... Obviously, I had to do a presentation, an open presentation to everybody. And uh, in the build-up to it, we just couldn't get the technology to work so they would show on the uh, projector. The guy who was chairing the Viva came in with me. It was uh, sorting it out. And at the time, I was really bad for parrot learning my presentations. Now, I just write it, turn up, do a presentation, and it flows a lot better for me. Mm-hmm without practicing it, because I've got a general gist of what I want to say, than when I parrot learned it. But at the time, I was parrot learning everything to the to the minute, to the second. And in the process of trying to sort out the technology, he'd moved, swapped around a couple of my slides. Oh, no. <laughs> which threw me completely off. So I remember getting to one graph, and I'm going, I can't. I genuinely can't remember what I was supposed to say about this slide now. What about this graph? <laughs> and uh, I just remember pointing to the, the graph and went. And if you look at this graph, <laughs> next slide. And apparently nobody <laughs> noticed. I just completely mumbled it. <laughs> and then that same chair for the Viva. Then, pro genuinely the most intelligent man I've ever met. Very interesting character. And he turned to me, he goes, Geraint, I know you're a big boy. You can handle this on your own. But if you need me, I'm in my office. And he just walks out and leaves me to it. (laughs) So I had to go and fetch him at the end of my Viva. Obviously, I went in with no confidence on it, just on the basis of what was written in it. Mm -hmm. And I had to go and fetch the chairman in right at the end, um, ready for him to deliver the result. and. Yeah, when they said I passed, obviously, I was like taken aback by it. I was obviously over the moon. And I remember the bit where it really hit me was my daughter was with my parents and she was uh, big into watching Doc McStuffins at the time. I don't know if you've either of you come across Doc McStuffins. Not what I'm aware of, no. So it's a, a Disney cartoon where uh, this little girl um, plays make-believe, essentially, that she is a doctor treating all these um, ailments that her toys, teddies and what have you've got. <laughs> and she's got this phrase, the doc is in. So uh, I remember walking in 
into the living room and just going, the dock is in. <laughs> and then welling up as soon as I said it. So yeah, that, that was a kind of special That's very moment. sweet, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, the, the one thing that stands out sort of all of that is that you, you've gone through a very non-typical route, I think. There's lots of things people can relate to, the, the sort of the need for resilience and the, the imposter syndrome. But really going from mechanical and materials engineering to start with through to pure chemistry and then biochemistry, how have you found that sort of the transition through different disciplines and how has that affected ultimately where you've gone with your career afterwards? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Not being an expert in any of these fields and not having done the background through all this, I always felt, again, a little bit of an imposter that I'm just winging it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Probably less sort of materials than I was with the, certainly with the biochemistry. So with the materials, I had done my undergrad degree, final year project, ended up being on... Um, links between strength and microstructure and brass. And during that, I did actually teach myself a lot of the principles of materials engineering that I went on to use later on. But yeah, certainly with the biochemistry, I was hanging on every word of my... uh, Well, again, this was a little bit atypical as well. So it started off... I knew how to go down this route and my supervisor said, speak to a guy called Bob Lovett. He does something about with biodiesel and algae up on the floor above. So I went and spoke to him and he had a bit of a hands-off approach, just showing me the way, um, just pushing me in the right direction. I was doing a bit of work on that. And at one point I needed to get some seawater and he just went, right, go down the beach. There's literally a beach opposite Swansea University. <laughs> go down there. I don't know if you've ever been down Swansea Bay, but mm-hmm. it is the shallowest beach you'll ever come across in your life. You're walking up, you've walked a mile out now and it's just about up to your knees, right? It's just really shallow. So you just, my legs were covered in silt and whatever it was, <laughs> right? And I just went, sod it. This is far enough out. I'll take some seawater. I took it back and I was working on that. And then, um, I imagine it's the same with both your doctor projects, but we had an annual conference where we'd showcase um, usually the work of the third year students, sometimes a couple of second years in amongst it, to the new starters, everybody else on the course, lecturers and industrial supervisors. Uh, while I was there, there just happened to be somebody from the biochemistry department who was sponsoring another project. And she's like, oh, I'm really interested in the work. Do you come and work with me on it and she was brilliant like I owe this woman a huge amount of uh, credit her name was Gertie Van Kulen. she as I said she was brilliant she basically held my hand through the um, through all the biochemistry stuff uh, one of the things that I did find interesting though was after that experience of walking out to get the seawater she said you do know that we've got a tap at Swans University that, that literally runs seawater. We take there's a big cylinder every day. We take in um a load of seawater, fills this tank, and you can just literally drain it off because they use it for another department where they were studying like crabs and what have you. And mm-hmm. they said, and there's also another department there that goes out 
um, with a fishing boat every day and guess those are samples of seawater. But, you know, the lack of collaboration <laughs> between departments meant that... That, that missed you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that there's so a I, seawater standard right, piped into the department. Exactly, and I could have <laughs> avoided getting my jeans covered in silt. Um, but, yeah, it, as I said, I found it really interesting to move between um, disciplines, and I learned a lot from it, but I always felt like the outsider uh, who just was winging it really and I guess there's a big there's a big chunk big chunk of us that because of imposter syndrome will always feel like we're winging it no matter what the discipline no matter how expert we are in it but I just genuinely felt like I was winging it but I just went with it's something new interesting I'm going to learn did you feel that the NGD aspect of it so being sponsored having a sponsor company to reply to and then the 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 units the lectures that you had to do did that help or did that hinder the non-linearity of it um so for me i like the fact it was an industry with a um a commercial requirement from it that i had real world applications i felt that that trained me for life after the PhD, shall we say. And I think the fact that I, w- that I was having to do the training on the side to become a consultant metallurgist, I think I just got used to becoming a fish out of water, just learning new things all the time. I just got used to it, I guess. Uh, but I could see how other people would have really struggled with it, where they want something defined that they want to stick to. Mm-hmm. So uh, what is it you do now and what have you taken from what you've learned during the doctorate being a jack of all trades? Again, a- another bit of non-linearity. So as I said, I was being trained to become a consultant metallurgist and then towards the end of my NHD, um, Artec were offered this lady who uh, who was working for a, oh, just a new placement year for a competitor and they said, look, she's a very good metallurgist. She's not enjoying the cure, but she might be a good fit with you. So they took her on as a full-time basis. And to be, be honest with you, I think she is absolutely world-class in what she does. She's brilliant. So that meant that coming to the end of my NHD, that metallurgy position wasn't open for me that I've been training for. But they did turn to me and go, well, we've got this uh, department now that we've just started on tests and composite materials and we need somebody to come in and run it. You can you can do a bit of consultancy work on the side, be multidisciplined, but um, this is where the opening is. And I'll be honest with you, having spent that time training to become a metallurgist, my heart sunk a little bit. And I was like, I know nothing about composites. I, ha- I had one module in university, didn't get on with it. Um, as a well, it's a job. I'll give it a go. And as much as I was disappointed at the time, it was the best thing that could ever happen to me. I've absolutely loved working in the composite field ever since. Um, it's far more interesting than metals, as much as my metallurgy colleagues would uh, uh, hate me for saying that. And the it's a small world in the composites industry as well. 
So it's, it's a it's a very social world. You get to know people very easily, and um, I develop a good social circle. I, I enjoy attending conferences and trade shows and meeting people from that. And it's something I wouldn't have been able to do if I was just a metallurgist. I wouldn't have met the range of people. I'd been more office-based. And then through that, I've worked my way up to become uh, director of composite testing. Um, I I got the lab NADCAP accredited. So as far as I'm aware, it's the only NADCAP accredited lab, independent lab for composite testing in the UK now. And expanded the scope and then recently one of my colleagues has decide, decided to leave and I've assumed the role of director of materials testing so I'm now in charge of both composites testing and testing rebar which is two completely different products um, but I guess that experience of having to do different disciplines all the time has prepared me for what's come after really in the it, it, it's essentially, you. one of the things my father always told me is a degree teaches you how to learn. That's the big thing you learn from a degree. And yeah, and it, it's proven that it's given me the, the ability to become an expert in a field that I've had no previous background in. Uh, and I, I think that's what I take away from it really is even though I've not had what you consider the standard training to get to where I am, that ability to learn and that ability to keep being thrown into something new has led me to be in a position where you could put me in a new environment and within a couple of years, I'd like to think I work my way up to become an expert in the field. I'd like to think. Um, I guess it all depends really on what that field is. I, I mean, I'm not be going to become a surgeon anytime soon. I, I'm not going to pretend I'd get any level of expertise on that. But that, in terms of the engineering sphere, possibly outside of the realms of finite element or design, I think general engineering, I think I could find my way. Pretty, I'm pretty adaptable. That's what I take from it. Have you found your way back to motorsport now that you're in composites? Yes and no. Yes and no. Uh, I, I've done some small jobs for motorsport applications. Um, I did a presentation at Motorsport AN last year that was well-received. And uh, I had a very... So I know Matthew will know this, but I don't know if you know this, Claudia. I actually host my own podcast called Material Evolution. And I had the fortune of interviewing Willem Tort as part of it. Um, Willem was the head of aerodynamics at Benetton when Michael Schumacher won the championship. He then went on to Ferrari. Uh, he worked with Michael Schumacher again there. And he's since worked at Honda before became Mercedes. Uh, Alfa Romeo as it is now, as it was Sauber. Uh, and yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting fringe interactions, shall we say, with the motorsport uh community but i'm not really fully immersed in it yet still looking to head back in that direction i guess well i did have uh an interview with mercedes formula one four or five years ago now mm. uh i was actually headhunted through linkedin and 
essentially what they were looking for, they were never going to find it anywhere. <laughs> it was an interesting experience. So they were looking for somebody who was an expert in polymers, composites, rubbers, and metals at the same time. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> As a, I can take two and a half, maybe, right? And the interview was quite interesting. They were just sticking bit components in front of me, go, how would you make this? What's it made of? If it failed, where would it fail? Mm-hmm. Et cetera, et cetera. And I think where I became unstuck is when they stuck uh, a black hose in, I guess it is, in front of me. And they went, what's that? It's a black bit of rubber. <laughs> and I didn't add any more to it. No, <laughs> no. I, I'm not going to bullshit you. I know nothing about rubbers. As far as I'm concerned, that's a black bit of rubber. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like they're looking for the, the Greek god of materials, really, at that point to try and yeah. head up their department. Yeah. They're not really going to have much luck there. When they got back to me afterwards, they said, of the candidates we interviewed, you were among the best, uh, but we've taken the decision where, because we'd need to train you up to be able to get you up to rubbers and uh, level, then we're better off. Instead of giving you an obscene salary, mm-hmm. taking on a couple of graduates and training them up. And I said, I would have started there in the first place if I was you. I wouldn't have even gone th- waste your time doing this. Yeah, trying to find somebody who can do it all. When yeah. yeah, what you need is a lot of different specialists. Yes. Yeah. Um, going back to what you said about um, starting your PhD during the, the 2009 financial crisis, I think there's a lot of parallels between that and people who started their PhDs during uh, COVID in the past couple of years. Have you got any advice for people coming out of a, a sort of, let's say, a job crisis like that and how to then move into industry or move on with their PhD afterwards? Yes, yeah, a good point. I'd say that there are similarities and there are similarities. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously the similarity is it's not a good market to be looking for jobs or hadn't been at the start of the pandemic, possibly is now because um, the the lack of particularly women in the workplace. So uh, I heard it described, the pandemic being described as a she session rather than a recession because women were leaving because they were having to pick up the childcare pieces and stuff like that. It, it, it overwhelmingly hit women than it did men mm-hmm. in, that front, in that respect. But yeah, on that respect, yes, there are similarities. But in another respect, not being able to access the lab or see people for 18 months is, is a completely different experience as well. Mm. And I have a lot of empathy for anybody who's gone through degree onwards during this period. I mean, if anybody started the degree at the start of the pandemic, you've literally missed out on the two best years of your life. All that partying and what have you, gone. You just had the education experience, not the university experience. Mm. Um, But in terms of coming out the other end of it, I'd say... Concentrate on your studies, uh, do the best you can with it, and in that final year, start making your plan about how you're going to get out to the other side. Start. If one of the things I would say that I wish I had done in hindsight is probably travel to the, go to some trade shows or what have you in your final year 
and make introductions with companies. Mm-hmm. I know the difficulty can be there's a lot of salespeople as opposed to technical people, but introduce yourself, say, look, next year I'll be on the market. Um, will you have opportunities there? And as much as I hate say that as somebody who, on the other side, oh, bloody students coming on now <laughs> at the end of a, a trade show, you those introductions go a lot further than just a blind CV and a piece of paper um, being sent in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would also say, when it comes to preparing your CV, do something that's going to stand out from the crowd. Um, I, I think some one of the guys uh, once said to me, oh, one of the things that I always loved about the office was David Brent went, I don't hire unlucky people. And literally picked up the deck of CVs, dumped half of them in the bin and went, unlucky. And right? <laughs> um, you, you want to be, avoid you being one of those ones just because it looks like the rest that you don't stand out. So mm-hmm. I made a point of doing a graphic design makeover of my CV. And all you have to do is type into Google graphic design CV and you can get templates off there. And I, I guarantee you, compared to the normal CV, that lands on somebody's de- desk and they go, oh, oh, this person's gone a little bit further. Mm. They, they got something different about them. So do you think doing your PhD set you apart from, say, your cohort of undergrads that you graduated with? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I do reflect on that sometimes in that I have technicians working for me now who've got degrees. And due to the, the way this company is traditionally operated, having a degree, the furthest you will ever go is to be a technician. Whereas having a PhD ha, has allowed me to become a, a director at the company. Um, you could argue that there's some previous snobbery involved in that. I don't know. But what I will say is, do I think I'm any better a worker now for having that PhD compared to when I had that degree? I don't know if I am. I, I'm just more qualified. But the opportunities have opened up for me by having that qualification is chalk and cheese. So, yeah, I would say, yes, if you've got the opportunity to do it, do it because the opportunities that will be there on the other side for you are significantly greater. And I must admit, I have abused the type title in the past as well. So one of the things that's always recommended to me is get, once you've uh, completed your doctorate, that you get doctors stuck in all your credit cards and what have you. And then when you play, um, when you book tickets on the airline, <laughs> Now, and again, you might get lucky and you'll get upgraded mm-hmm. just because you're a doctor. Uh, you do have to, not for <laughs> me, but I know of other people it has happened for. Um, but one of the things you do have to be wary of is they go, is there a doctor on board? Yes. Is he rusting or is he made a calm <laughs> fiber? No, I can't have. Um, but when I did abuse it was I did do a brief entry into politics. And there was a, there's plans to build a, a waste incinerator right next to my daughter's primary school, which was just mad, right? And the local council, as much as they'll say otherwise now, 
at the time were definitely for the incinerator being built because there was financial benefits to them. I'm not going to say there's backhanders because I don't think that's strictly accurate. I but there were benefits to be had for the for the councils in terms of money that they could spend elsewhere as a result mm-hmm. of it. Um, so I became, I actually became a member of Applied Cymru after the Brexit referendum on the basis that I thought Wales is going to be absolutely screwed by Brexit, which is proven to be the case now. And I wanted to be able to do something to contribute to it. But I was always kind of a fringe member until that happened. And then all of a sudden, I I abuse both. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to abuse both. You having that title to give me more credibility, and having that political allegiance to put the shits up the the ruling party because it was a different mm. party to build my case going forward and raise my profile. And ultimately, uh, it led to the largest ever protest against a um, a planning application in Swansea Council history. Uh, I, I I did even get Extinction Rebellion on board <laughs> and got to close a few things down. Um, but on that front, yes. And then I, I did actually stand at the 2019 general election and I made a point of going Dr. Garrett Harvard because all of a sudden people are going to go, oh, this guy's no, no mug, is he? he? He's somebody of standing of credibility. Mm. Um, so on that front, yeah, I did use it. And I was briefly scared that I'd actually get elected <laughs> in 2019 as well. Um, ultimately, about what I, I'm convinced was COVID, um, stopped my campaign. Because this was before COVID was known about, but I had the worst cold I've ever had in my life. It just hit me for six for about mm. three weeks. And the the media um, machine basically crushed any hope I had. So at the start of that campaign, I was knocking on people's doors and people were going, we hate Corbyn, we hate the Tories, you're going to get my vote. And I was like, oh shit, I'm going to get <laughs> But by the three weeks later, by the time the media machine had got its way in and everybody's like, I need to vote Labour to, to stop the Tories getting in, or I need to vote Tories to stop Labour getting in. That that vote just disintegrated, and then it became, you're by far the best candidate, but... And I was like, yeah, I, I can live with that. I've got my... De- as long as I get my deposit back, <laughs> I'm fine. Mm, that's an interesting way to use your your doctor. I don't think anybody... Particularly, a lot of people don't plan going into a PhD and knowing what they want to do, but I certainly don't think people plan on going to do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Would you say, sort of talking about your tips for people wrapping up their undergrad or their PhD, going out and, and going to trade shows, do you think it's a case of just getting started early, always having that idea in your head, or that you can pick that up later on? I think getting started early is a good thing. The earlier you can make those connections, the more opportunity that those opportunities are going to be there on the other side. I think a good thing about a paid PhD or a paid NGD is you do have that opportunity to take an internship as well. Whereas I'd say outside of being in that situation, 
an internship is very much the domain of the rich. The average person can't afford to work for free for a month or what have you. Whereas you can legitimately take a month off while being funded by your PhD, NHD, get some work experience behind you. And even if that opportunity is not there with that company afterwards, having that work experience on your CV will make a world of difference afterwards um, in terms of employment chances. So I'd say and you will, I don't know what the situation is with every university, but I know it was the kind of thing that was at least actively encouraged at Swans University that you, you got that real world experience um, and had some sort of work experience doing the program. And have you, I guess, generally speaking, going forward for any graduates that either undergrad or masters or PhD going forward into your industry and your expertise, have you got any tips for them as to how to, to get in and, and stand out, like you said? What I will say is, in hindsight, there is a guy, I come across him all the time on LinkedIn. I can't remember what his name is. I'll probably find him very quickly, but I'll keep talking when I look. Um, and he has developed himself a very strong LinkedIn um, presence while he was doing his undergrad degree in Brazil. And what he does is he goes looking for interesting content and shares that. Got him. Marcelo Majero Webster. So he puts out regular interesting content about composite materials, anything he can find on the internet. And he's like a machine. Once a day, twice a day, he's putting something out. He may well be using Hootsuite or something like that to, to pre-plan it. But what that's done is, alongside his own um, research that he's, he's done, by putting that information out there, it gives the, the wider composite industry that... Um, that impression that you're an expert already, that you you have a real interest in that field. And he's built up a, a big, a very big network. So that meant that by the time he's looking for a job, somebody's not just employing a person with a set of skills, they're employing a person with a big network. And the network is, has value in itself, especially if they go into the world of business development or something like that. Um, so that's something in hindsight that I'd say, if you've got the opportunity to build your LinkedIn presence, don't ignore the LinkedIn, do something with it, make it, at least make it look professional as a minimum, if you come at the end of your, uh, doctorate. Um, but if you can put something out there that allows you to build your network in advance of entering the jobs market, then you're standing out from the crowd. And that is something I would recommend. I'd, I'd agree with that. Yeah, that's definitely something that I've had pressed upon me in the past and I've seen sort of start to pay off now is that, um, yeah, LinkedIn can be a very good way for very little effort and no financial cost to make yourself appear bigger than you are and to, to showcase what you're capable of. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Garrett. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, I think we've got some really no interesting problem. stories and some really good insights there. So uh, thank you and thank you everyone for listening. This episode was brought to you by Claudia J. Martin and Matt Bone. 
The episode was edited and produced by Ivan Moraviev, Rachel Ward, and Paul Spencer from the Bristol Doctoral College. We hope to see you again in the next episode.